Today's reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21, and it reads, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who is, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good afternoon. Hope that y'all are doing well and staying warm. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you didn't hear LC, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're looking at verses 11 through 21 this afternoon. Well, in 2001, there was a movie called Black Hawk Down, and the movie tells the story of American soldiers at conflict in Somalia. The story, or the film, is centered around what some would consider a military disaster. You see, during the conflict, two American Black Hawk helicopters were shot down, innocent people are captured and killed, and American soldiers at some point weren't sure when to properly engage the enemy, whether or not they could engage the enemy, or whether or not they were engaging the right people. In short, this conflict caused widespread chaos and confusion on the battlefield. The film captures not only the tragedy and the brutality of war, but it shows us that when confusion occurs, discipline and communication break down and accidents such as friendly fire take place. This is often the case with the church as well. When confusion rises about who our enemy is, Discipline and communication, such as our confession of faith, our conviction, the way we live, break down. And as a consequence, many Christians are wounded by friendly fire. 
In our concluding sermon from 1 Timothy, Paul provides Timothy with one overarching theme, one big reminder, and that is to hold fast to the confession of our faith. The term hold fast means to remain tightly secure. And in this case, to remain tightly secure, uh, to remain tightly secure in the confession and conviction of Jesus' work for sinners. The reality for Paul is that the Christian life is one of warfare. Fighting is not optional. That is, we have not only been accepted through faith in Jesus, we have also been enlisted. You and I are engaged in a spiritual war that rages for the affection of our hearts. See, Satan wants you to be lured by sin. Satan is okay with morality as long as Jesus is not reigning in your life. Satan wants you to fall away. Therefore, here's your main idea. Therefore, holding fast to our confession is not passive agreement, but active engagement in spiritual warfare. If we do not hold fast, then we run the risk of giving rise to confusion in the church. We will suffer the consequences of friendly fire. Sin will be tolerated, and Jesus will be forgotten. And so as we consider our text this morning, let me pray, and then we'll dig into this last chunk of 1 Timothy. Father, as we come to you through the study and preaching of your word, give us, give us understanding and wisdom. Humble us this afternoon so that our will would be your will, or so that your will, I should say, would be our will. May your word this afternoon be sweeter than the taste of honey. May our thirst be quenched by Jesus' work for us. And may our souls be renewed through the counsel of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Paul's final words to Timothy, you'll notice that everything is practical. In verses 11 to 21, everything is practical. Paul lists several, do this, don't do that. He is very uh, practical in the sense of providing us with positives and then negatives. And I understand that when it comes to texts like these, they tend to be very helpful for many Christians, and they should be. Practical uh, disciplines tend to be well-received, but I want to make something really clear before we dig into these verses, and that is that these practical disciplines, everything that Paul's about to expand on, these practical disciplines work only if your heart has first been changed by God through faith in Jesus. That's what we need to get right as we look to what does holding fast in the faith look like. As Paul provides us with practical disciplines, practical uh, uh, working out of our faith, we need to understand that these only work if our heart has been first changed by God through faith in Jesus. And if that's not the case for you, then these disciplines uh, serve simply as a list of morals that will leave you frustrated, often discouraged, and arrogant. 
These disciplines serve as a guide in the pursuit of holiness. And what we're going to see is that's what Paul wants us to embrace in verses 11 to 16. He says that in order to hold fast, you and I must pursue holiness. The pursuit of holiness doesn't secure your identity in Christ. It reveals whether or not you are in Christ. And beginning in verse 11, Paul begins this by addressing it in a very personal way. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and go to verse 11. Paul opens by saying, but as for you, O man of God. I love that Paul does this in several of his letters. One of the things he does, particularly with Timothy, is that he's always giving him the instructions of what to do. Hey, I need you to make sure, in this case of 1 Timothy, I need you to confront and correct false teachers. This is how you're going to establish order in the church. Make sure that you address these things with these specific people. Here are some of the teachings that are spreading throughout the church. So it's very practical. It's very big picture. And then we get to a verse like 1 Timothy 6, 11, and he makes it personal. And he says, but as for you. And so he makes it very personal, not just to Timothy, but to us. This is the Holy Spirit through Paul speaking to you and I directly. Because we can make it really easy to look at big picture stuff without ever making it actually personal. But as for you, O man of God, he continues, flee these things and pursue righteousness. He gives us a negative followed by a positive. These things refer to what he's already written. This refers back to what Alan actually preached on last week, uh, different doctrine that Timothy is to be aware of the different false teaching that is being spread, that he is to avoid controversy and quarrels, uh, that he is to avoid and push back against discontentment and idolatry. And so what Paul is telling us or what God is telling us through Paul here is when it comes to spiritual warfare, it's one thing to flee from things. It's quite another to know about them so that we can kill them. To the Romans, Paul tells them to put to death the deeds of the body. The idea here is that it's not always unhealthy controversies that are trying to pull us away from the Lord. It's not just the article that you read online this week. Sometimes it's these other affections in your heart that are pulling you away from the Lord. And so while Paul is saying, hey, flee those things, that doesn't mean don't kill them. That doesn't mean entertain them. That doesn't mean just leave them on the shelf. No, sometimes we're going to be in a tactical withdrawal. Sometimes we're going to be active in killing our sin. But it doesn't end there. Right? In other words, Paul isn't saying, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, period. Let's move on to the next thing. He says, no, what I want you to do is, as you flee from temptation, as you put sin to death, I want you to replace it by pursuing holiness. You're not just going to be left to yourself. Pursue holiness. And so here's where he begins to unpack some practical things. He says to pursue righteousness. Oftentimes, when we see this word righteousness, it has to deal with our standing before God. In the context of 1 Timothy 6, that's not how Paul is using it. He's talking about practical righteousness, that is, the way we treat others, our conduct toward other people. In a word, our character. 
So he says, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness. Godliness has to deal with our posture, our hearts toward God. Now, why does that matter? Because that then informs how we live. And in Paul's letters, he mentions godliness about 15 times. Eight or nine of those times are found in 1 Timothy alone. Our posture before God affects the way we live. It is revealed in the way we live. He says to pursue faith and love. Faith is not wishful thinking. It is a gift from God. It is not simply belief, but surrender and follow through with what God has revealed in His Word. When it comes to love, Outside of Christ, our understanding or perspective of love is skewed and distorted because we're going based off of what the world says love is. There's a reason a lot of romantic comedies make millions upon millions of dollars and people want these happy endings all of the time. But in Christ, our view and perspective of love is now rightly restored because it is Jesus who loved us first. And from there, it impacts how we live and love others. In Jesus, we grow in these two areas as we we regularly make the Word of God the center of our Christian walk. Paul says, pursue steadfastness. This is the ability to endure in difficult times. To persist. As we've walked through 1 Timothy, we know that Timothy is under heat. He's under heat because he's young. He's under heat because he's correcting false teachers. He's under heat because he's pushing back with the gospel towards the teaching that is spreading in the church. People don't like him. Paul has already had to kick out a few people that we saw in chapter 1. And so Timothy has to endure the difficulty. So he wants him to be steadfast. In other words, he wants him to to hold fast, to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. And then he says to pursue gentleness. A gentle heart does not mean it's a passive heart. It means that it is one that is humble. It is not one that is weak. It is one that is meek, like Jesus A gentle heart does not mean that we cannot be firm and gracious in our response to false teaching, especially when the gospel is at stake. In fact, it is because the gospel is at stake that we must be gentle, but that doesn't mean we're passive. The point here is that the pursuit of holiness involves replacing wickedness, flee these things, with holiness righteousness, gentleness, steadfastness, right? Paul's not just saying, hey, stop doing those things. Anyway, grace be with you, deuces. Paul says, flee these things. Put this sin to death. There is a war for your heart. Therefore, pursue these other things. Pursue these other things. And as we pursue holiness, we increase our effectiveness in the gospel. We increase our stamina to fight the good fight. That's what Paul writes in verse 12. 
He continues, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many, many witnesses. So as we pursue holiness, it's like, it's like strength and conditioning, right? We grow in our endurance and our stamina to continue to fight for the good, or excuse me, to fight for the faith. The word fight comes from the Greek word for struggle, and so Paul has in mind something that's requiring a lot of energy, like a wrestling match or a boxing match. And, and the reason we can say, like, why would you say wrestling or boxing is because he usually alludes to some kind of sport in his letters. And so the word fight here is, like, you've got to not only keep your hands up, but you're still going in the midst of this struggle, And so Paul has been saying that, hey, not only must we flee or put sin to death, not only must we pursue holiness, we don't just do those things for morality's sake, we do those so that we can continue to fight in the faith that God has called us and gifted us with. In his next letter to Timothy, this isn't up on the screen, but this is 2 Timothy 2.4, he tells Timothy No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So Paul is constantly redirecting Timothy. The Spirit through Paul is constantly redirecting us to say, hey, you're not just doing these things because they're good for you. You're doing these things because your focus, your aim, your foundation is actually the finished work of Jesus for you. And so when Paul writes that we are to fight for the faith, it's not something abstract, it's for the word and work of Christ for sinners. And perhaps part of the reason Paul is writing this at this point in the chapter and the letter is because this is exactly what wasn't happening in Ephesus. You see, instead of people fighting for the, uh, for the faith, people were wandering away from it. If you scroll down to verse 21, or actually, verse 20 and 21, Paul brings it back. He says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Verse 21, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So there were individuals in the church who, instead of fighting for the faith, were wandering away from it because they were lured by other teachings. See, instead of confessing the promises of God, many were complaining about their discontentment. Fighting for the faith means defending our faith. It means to hold fast to where the lines have already been drawn by the Word of God. Fighting for the faith means fighting for the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus. It means to fight for the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross for sinners. To fight for the truths of the gospel and take hold of them with our lives. Not partially, not just with the things that we like and the things we're comfortable with, but holistically. That is the point of the pursuit of holiness. And that's what Paul tells Timothy, take hold of the eternal life. This phrase is the free gift of faith to everyone who comes to Jesus, trusting in Him and asking forgiveness. And Paul is saying, take hold of that. Hold fast to that message, to that salvific work. Take hold of it. Hold on to it with all of your strength for all that it's worth. Hold on to it. 
It is that message that God used to bring you to salvation in Him. It is that message that you confessed in the presence of many witnesses. Therefore, walk in light of that. And so he constantly, what Paul does here is that he constantly reminds Timothy of both his life and his doctrine, of his belief and his behavior. It's like Paul won't let that go because we can't let that go. You can't divorce belief from behavior. Earlier in the letter, Paul tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Watch your life, watch your doctrine. And then he continues, persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The pursuit of holiness is one of the ways in which we hold fast to the confession of our faith. But just looking at the pursuit of holiness can come across daunting, exhausting, even discouraging. And so Paul continues to encourage Timothy by pointing him to the ultimate example, to the ultimate person who held fast to the faith under the most significant of heat. He continues, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So he points to Jesus to give Timothy encouragement. Hey, Jesus has paved the way for you. The kind of heat that you're experiencing, Jesus experienced hotter heat. But here's the thing, under that heat, he bravely maintained his bold confession. And so when he tells him, I charge you, it's almost like this, like he's snapping his fingers at Timothy saying, hey, hey, look at me. This is what you need to stand on. This is your reminder. This faith, this gift of faith that you have been given, man, it was actually paid for you by Jesus. Therefore, you can do this. You can hold fast to the faith. And as he tells him that, he continues by saying to keep the commandment pure. There's a lot of, I don't know, debate on what he means by the commandment. Some well, some commentators will say that it, it refers to what Paul has already written, the, the entirety of this letter. It could be the mission that Timothy's on to, to confront and correct false teachers. It could be that Paul is talking about the entirety of God's Word. Whatever it is that he's referring to, he reminds Timothy to hold fast to that confession. Hold fast to that confession. And he continues <clears throat> to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. And we're going to look at this later on, but ultimately what Paul is telling him is, hey, as you look to Jesus for your source of encouragement, for your source of, and who is sufficient, guard it. Hold on to it. Hold fast to it. You can do this. And as you do it, make sure that it's unstained. In other words, make sure that it is guarded and clear. Make sure that it is free from reproach, that your life doesn't bring question to this confession, to this gospel, to this Jesus. And because of Jesus' mm, trailblazing way, you can do this. John Calvin, also not on the screen, failed you guys. Anyway, so also not on the screen, one of the things that good old Johnny Calv says is this, whenever our hearts waver, 
let us remember immediately to look at the death of Christ for strength. What cowardice it would be to desert such a, such a leader who goes before us to show us the way. Christian, are you tired? Look to Jesus. Are you tired? Because you will be tired. Look to Jesus. Are you weak? Because you will grow weak. Look to Jesus. Are you discouraged? Because there will be those moments. Look to Jesus. Do you have doubts? Because you will have those seasons. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Pursue holiness so that your stamina in the fight continues. And I remember studying this and asking, like, man, how long? How long are we going to fight? God is so cool. He answers it. Um, He goes on to say in verse 14, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. How long? Until Jesus comes out, until Jesus returns. In this, and and I'll go ahead and, and read it, to the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. And so he gives Timothy one piece of, of advice. He says, continue to fight until Jesus comes back. So he tells him, continue to fight for the faith with certainty because Jesus will return. You're not fighting aimlessly. You're not fighting randomly. You're not fighting and trying to figure it out. You can fight this good fight with certainty because Jesus will return with glory and dominion and with the baddest set of reinforcements anyone has ever seen. Help is on the way, and you are not alone. So he tells him, hey, continue to fight the good fight with certainty, but I also want you to continue the good fight with clarity. Why does he give him clarity? Because clarity produces worship. He continues. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings. It's like he busts out in worship mid-thought, right? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Continue to fight the good fight with clarity over who Jesus is. Having that clarity produces Worship, because Jesus is the only one who is sovereign. He is the only one who is sovereign. Everyone, everything is under his rulership. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the only immortal. In other words, every creature depends on him for existence. Jesus is the only one with the fullness of God's glory. And because of Jesus, we are reconciled to the Father. So continue to fight the good fight with certainty that Jesus will return and help is on the way. And continue to fight the good fight with clarity over who Jesus is because that breeds worship in the midst of heat. In short, when we look at verses 11 to 16, Paul is ultimately telling Timothy you need to hold fast to the confession of faith when others won't. You must remain true to the sound teaching 
when others go astray. Each one of us can have a bunch of different stories, whether it's coworkers, family, friends from high school, friends from college, friends from grad school, men who were like on fire for the Lord, and then they strayed away. This is why Paul makes it personal to you, Christian. Hold fast to the faith. You remain true to the confession of faith because others won't. So know when to flee from sin. Know how to kill sin. Know what to pursue and why you're pursuing it. The reminder is that there is a war raging right now for the affection of your hearts. Satan does not want Jesus ruling and reigning the fullness of your heart. We must be alert. We must be vigilant so that we know who the enemy is, who the enemy is not, and how to avoid confusion among one another. Holding fast means that we pursue holiness and embrace greater affections. Next, Paul, almost in mid-thought, takes us to the next point, and that is to hold fast by embracing a greater hope. This is verses 17 to 19, and it's really interesting because 11 to 16, Paul is unpacking the pursuit of holiness, and it's almost as if he has finished his little moment of worship talking about Jesus as the King of Kings, and he thinks, you know what, I'm going to go back and reread my letter, make sure I didn't miss anything, and he realizes, I have another thought about generosity, or I have another thought about those who are wealthy. I'm just going to throw that in now. And so he does, because that's what he does. So he encourages Timothy to hold fast by embracing a greater hope. Let's look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, that means on this side, on this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So it's almost like Paul saying, you know what? I forgot something. Let me hook you up. Let me tell you something else, right? This is almost in line with what Alan was preaching on last week. But nevertheless, he tells Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to challenge, to exhort, to charge, that's the word he uses, to charge those who are wealthy with two warnings, right? With two warnings about wealth. The first one is, that those who are all about their wealth, their riches, can have a false sense of importance. That's what he means when he uses the word haughty. In other words, they can become arrogant. They become arrogant because they boast about their latest purchase. I just bought this X, Y, and Z. Did you know this came out the other day? I already bought five of them of whatever it is that they buy. They boast about everything that they're going to do in the future as if it is guaranteed to them. They boast about their importance because of the amount of money they make or perhaps even some of the things that they have done. One of my favorite quotes from Alan last week is he went on to say, when we place ourselves above the sufficiency of Scripture, that's not contentment, it's entitlement. So those who have, who idolize wealth, 
They're not content. They're entitled. They're arrogant. They're haughty. They boast about what they have now. And so the first warning that Paul tells Timothy to charge them with is, hey, a love for money or with wealth as an idol, you have a false sense of importance. Number two, if you have a a, a love for money, if this is your idol, then you run the risk of having a false sense of security, right? Because they set their hopes on the uncertainties of riches. Now, this does not mean you can't be rich, right? Make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. Heard it from the pulpit. All right, here we go. Um, It doesn't mean you can't be rich. Rather, the warning is centered around self-indulgence. And this is a theme that Paul has been talking about over the course of this letter, that these individuals have been won over by this one idol, that they are now indulging in this idol. And his point is that riches or earthly pleasures can provide no lasting joy. In other words, you can't take them with you when you die. Riches are here today, but they're gone tomorrow. And so those who idolize wealth and financial security, he is saying, you actually have a false sense of security. An example would be, and we can look at many modern ones, but an example would be this. In 1923, nine of the wealthiest men in the world held a meeting in Chicago about generating more revenue for their companies uh, and how to better manipulate capital. Uh, and so I won't give you all their names because they're all dead, and unless you want to know them, I'll tell you them, right? But uh, uh, here, here's wh- what they were. One of them owned, like, the largest steel company in the country at the time. One of them owned the largest gas company at the time. One of them was a part of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, one was uh, a big, big shot on, on Wall Street. So these individuals uh, were uh, people of great influence and wealth. Well, I'll go quickly. One of them, 10 years later, all of them lost their wealth. One of them lived on borrowed money for the last five years of his life and died bankrupt. Another one went legally insane. Another one died penniless in a foreign country and as a fugitive of the law. Another also died in a foreign country and in debt. Uh, Another one was sent to a maximum security prison. Another one who was part of the presidential cabinet at that time was sent to the same prison, then released just so that he can go home and die. Um, And the last three, uh, this was the Wall Street guy and another one that worked at a bank, the last three all committed suicide. You think, well, man, those are statistics from the 1920s. Actually, those ring very loudly even in our modern day. Here's the bottom line. You cannot trust Jesus and money at the same time. Therefore, rather than a life being marked by self-indulgence, Paul says that our lives as Christians, remember he's writing to the church, our lives should be marked by generosity. And this is the point where, like, in the church, when we start talking about generosity, when we start talking about money, you see people like, oh, I don't really like talking about this. I love talking about it only because it makes people uncomfortable. So, um, <laughs> so let's dive into this. Here, here's what that means, that a life ought to be marked by generosity first. 
This means that recognizing that all of our riches, all of your wealth, let's make it personal just like Paul does, all of your riches, all of your wealth are available to you solely because God has allowed them to be. Let's just park there for a second. All of the riches that you have, all of the wealth that you have is because God has allowed you to have it. Therefore, give thanks, Christian. Second, Riches are marked by generosity, not because of the bank account, but because the ultimate form of generosity that we as Christians have received is through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. In other words, Christians are generous not because of their wallets, but because of what they believe about grace. I'll step outside the pulpit. Say it again. Christians are generous not because of their wallets, but because of what they believe about grace. Christians are generous not because of their wallets, but because of what they believe about grace. That's how significant it is. That's how significant it is. Paul to the Corinthians, this will be on the screen, says it this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Generosity begins with what we believe about grace. Third, riches are not bad. Wealth is not bad, but it's also not for the purpose of gain necessarily. It's for the purpose of giving more. See, oftentimes when it comes to giving, we're like, I want to give so that I can get, right? God, I've been obedient. God, I've done this. Therefore, what do I get? No, the purpose of generosity is that we get to give so that we get to give more. That is the purpose of generosity. Well, I don't really like that. It begins with what you believe about grace. Paul tells Timothy, continuing, I think this is verse 18, he says, God is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He goes on to say, they, those who are wealthy in the church, because he's talking to those in the church, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So he says, hey, for the ones who are wealthy, I want them to be rich in good works. And that tells us something about God. That tells us he's not necessarily after the money. He's after hearts for service. Because here's the thing, it's one thing to pay for someone's meal, it's another thing to invite them to your house, cook for them, and sit down with them and eat with them. Why? Because generosity begins with what we believe about grace. So we are to be rich in good works. But then, you know, Paul is honest, and, he's like, and he goes on to say, they're to be rich in good works, comma, to be generous. So he's like, I'm not going to lie, there are some things that require money. Right? Like he's not shy about it, which is what I love. Right? <clears throat> and so we are to be generous. In other words, when we are generous, that doesn't mean we don't have uh, good stewardship of our finances. In fact, that's part of what we do as Christians. We're not just throwing money all around, right? We are to be good stewards of what we have been given. What I was thinking about when studying this was we started this year with a series on stewardship. And the idea of biblical stewardship 
is not only that we manage our time and money well, but the way we steward those resources reflects the goodness of God's character. And so when we apply it to the context of money, because that's what Paul is talking about, it begins with stewardship. Stewardship is marked by generosity. Or excuse me, generosity, one of the marks of generosity is, is stewardship. In the second century, the biggest difference that we know of, the biggest difference between Christians and non-Christians, this is at the time where the church exploded, the biggest difference that we know about between Christians and non-Christians, apart from the confession of faith, is the generosity of Christians. That was one of the marks that historians put down on paper in comparing Christians to non-Christians. Generosity. That they not only gave and supported and supplied those in the church and those within the family of faith, but those who didn't know Jesus. Not just the poor, not just the marginalized, especially them, but Christians were marked by their generosity. Could we say the same thing today? What could our church accomplish if we were as generous? Once more, generous giving isn't for the purpose of getting. That's entitlement. It is that we get to give so that we give more. Excuse me, our treasure is not here on earth. We can't take it with us. But what we do in light of the gospel helps to expand the kingdom. So it's not like money isn't a reality. And I get it, right? Like, sometimes that's a really sensitive issue, maybe because of experiences that you've had, YouTube videos of individuals that you've seen. I was watching this one earlier this week. His name is Apostle David Taylor, whatevs. Anyway, and so uh, <laughs> he's on, on his ministry channel, and he's talking about how they need $36 million, and this is what God told him in a dream, and $36 million is what they need. Now, this guy, a couple of years ago, went through a several-hour-long deposition on when they were asking him about, why did you cut a Mercedes in half to expand it to a limo. And he's like, oh, we need that for the ministry. Why do you have this kind of residence, which is this big mansion? And he says, oh, no, that's a ministry center. Like, no, that's bro. And so, like, that's not what we're, like, let's just be clear. We're not doing that here, okay? That's not it. But, <laughs> right, but I do want to at least share in the event that you don't listen or watch the, read the emails. Let me give you a little bit of where we're at, and I'll be quick about this because you're going to get it in your inbox later anyway, right? I want to tell you about where we're at, and I also want to share about this month, November, and then December. Here's some really good news. I thought it was cool, man. I swear, if y'all don't celebrate, I'm just going to walk away discouraged. All right, here we go. The good news is giving in our church, Storehouse McAllen, has increased by 18% this year compared to last. That's y'all. And by God's grace, we've grown. So that's all really good right? Which means needs have grown, right? So here's the latest news, okay? Here's the latest news. In case you didn't know, we moved locations, right? Four Sundays ago, we were not preaching from uh, this pulpit, right? Uh, so we moved. We also have offices now, or new office space, and for a lot of this transition, uh, 
this shouldn't be a surprise to you if you are a member. Uh, We dipped into savings because of unforeseen expenses, whether it was having to do with computer equipment or just moving expenses. We dipped into savings, which is one of the things that we talked about. Well, with that being said, we need to finish the year well. We need to finish the year well. So here's how much we budget for every month. Since January, this is how much we budget. It's about $8,000 a month. When you break it down, it's about $2,100, $2,200 a week. Y'all following? $8,000 a month. We need to finish the year well to cover that base. $8,000 for November, $8,000 for December. Following? Okay? In addition to another $10,000. Now, if you're like, whoa, chill because I wrote about this earlier on, okay? At the start of the year, when we walked into 22, we walked into this year with a deficit, which we projected, which our savings could cover easily, okay? We raised externally half of that. So it was a $20,000 deficit. We raised $10,000 to cover that externally from other churches, who were generous. So as we close the year, in total, we're looking to raise both what we've already uh, budgeted for and what we're looking to cover that deficit. It's $26,000. That's $13,000 for November, $13,000 for December. What if we don't do it? We have a savings that's really, really healthy because of your generosity, but we don't want to dip into it because we want to use that money for 2023. Y'all follow me on that? All right, all of this will be on an email. I just wanted to let you know, right? Because I know individuals, I'm going to look down. I know individuals who are like, I didn't know that. It's in your inbox. Um, <laughs> Everett and I worked on hours for that video, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> with that being said, that's where we're at. When we walk into next year, we're projecting growth which is a wonderful thing. We have been super conservative these last two and a half years. We are projecting growth for next year. All of that I'll cover later on. But the idea of the growth that we're projecting for next year isn't just to cover salaries or so that the lights would stay on. It's so that we would continue to equip people in the church. We have individuals that are discerning their call to pastoral ministry. They need to get trained. That takes money. We have men and women who are working through and discerning their call to uh, the ministry of deacon, right? They need to get trained in January. That takes money because that means asking them to stay at certain hours and saying no to other things. We have about five community groups. Those community group leaders are investing in other people in their groups to raise up new leaders to plant more groups. That takes money. That takes time. Every year, by God's grace, we've had an intern or a resident. That means that we get to build people up to do the work of ministry in really unique ways because of your generosity. You can do this. We can do this. Why does this matter? Because I want us to take hold of that which is truly life. That's what Paul concludes this section with. Storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The purpose of these finances isn't simply to keep the lights on, as I mentioned, but to invest back into the church so that we would disciple, 
proclaim, serve, and equip our congregation to go out and do the same so that more people can meet Jesus, so that more people can worship Jesus, and so that more people can come and live like Jesus. That's the greater investment. Generosity is not simply a practical issue. It's a theological issue that begins with what we believe about grace. And speaking of grace, we hold fast by embracing God's grace. This is verses 20 to 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Everything from the pursuit of holiness to the stewardship of our finances revolves around embracing greater affections. The first of those affections being Jesus. There is nothing stronger than the grace of God that allows us to do so. The grace of God is what empowers us while we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And so as Paul began this letter by extending grace to Timothy, he concludes this letter by reminding Timothy of God's grace for him. And so when he opens or when he concludes by saying, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. The deposit is the confession of our faith. See, Timothy, and in turn, you and I are trustees of this apostolic faith. To be a trustee means that the deposit we guard goes unharmed and unchanged. We do not reinvent, we guard. We do not innovate, we preserve. We do not reinterpret, we defend. Leo the Great, a priest from the 4th century, said it this way on the deposit. He says, the deposit is that which is committed to you, not that which is invented by you. That which you have received, not that which you have devised. A thing not of wit, but of learning. Not of private assumption, but of public tradition. A thing brought to you, not brought forth of you where you are not an author, but a keeper, not a leader, but a follower. Keep the deposit. Paul concludes by saying, grace be with you. The word you in the original language is written in the plural. He's addressing the church, not just Timothy in that last part. Why? It is God's grace that saves us. That's what Paul preached in 1 Timothy 1, that Christ came to save sinners. It is God's grace that empowers us to do the work of ministry and to live the life that God has called us to. That's 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 5. It is God's grace that humbles us and reveals our character. That's chapters 2 and 3 as we worked through prayer and godly leadership and past pastors and the home and deacons and the character of the church. It is God's grace that sustains us. In chapter 4, he tells Timothy, watch your life, watch your doctrine, persist in those things. It is God's grace that enables us to serve one another in a way that is radically different from the world as we cultivate a culture of honor. That's 1 Timothy 5. 
And it is solely by God's grace that we hold fast to the confession of our faith and keep it. 1 Timothy 6. Much like the American soldiers that were at war in Somalia, when confusion spread through their platoons quickly, communication and discipline broke down. The same can take place in the church when we are forgetful, fearful, and apathetic toward our enemy and especially the Lord Jesus. The result is wounded Christians, a confused church, and many wandering aimlessly from the faith, poached by Satan and worldly passions. But God has not left us to ourselves. In fact, through the Apostle Paul, God has given us, has given his church instructions on what to do, how to live, and how to fight. These instructions were not thought of on a whiteboard, but lived out through the Lord Jesus who walked in our place, took responsibility for our confusion, and died on a cross to cover our sin. The Lord Jesus' resurrection is the proclamation of victory over sin, Satan, and death. Therefore, while the presence of sin still exists, you have the power through the Holy Spirit to put sin to death, to embrace our greatest affection in Jesus, and live in light of the gospel. We titled this series Family Matters because as a church family, there has been a variety of topics that we needed to discuss, to make clear, and to navigate through. Thankfully, we didn't need to do that on our own, for it was only by looking at the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus and His Word that we were able to see clearly how the church was meant to flourish. Therefore, church, let us guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us. Let us guard it today. Let us guard it tomorrow, next month, and in the next year should we be allowed to see it. And so as we close, Christian, are you tired? Look to Jesus. Are you weary? Look to Jesus. Are you greedy? Look to Jesus. Are you apathetic? Look to Jesus. Confess that before him. You have the grace to do so. And look to Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, and you are, in a way, you are an enemy of God, alienated and estranged, all of this will sound like moral code. All of this is only made possible by a heart that has first been changed by Jesus. And the beauty of the gospel is that he doesn't leave you to yourself. Instead, he provides a way for you to come and know him. And that is through faith in Jesus. Holding fast to the confession of faith is not passive agreement. It is active engagement in spiritual warfare as we guard the deposit of our faith. Let's pray. God, you have been clear through your word to tell us that we are at war 
and that we are in a war that is not against flesh and blood. Rather, we are in a spiritual war where our sin, where Satan and worldly passions tug at the strings of our heart. And they do so so that these passions, so that these temptations would be ruling and reigning, so that they would be sufficient and supreme. And Lord, hear us confess that sometimes we prefer those idols and passions to your mercy and grace. Often we prefer them without thinking about you. We are caught up in our own desires that we take, that we take your grace for granted. And rather than being empowered by your grace, we enslave ourselves again and willingly to our sin. Lord, would you forgive us? Today, may we look to Jesus not only as our example, but as our source of hope. It is because of Jesus that both our sins are forgiven and that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, our great helper, convicting, counseling, and guiding us to know and live like Jesus. And now, church, as we transition...